I love figs. I literally do love figs. Anything fig, that's not a joke. They are nature's candy. And the ones that Valley Fig Growers are growing in the San Joaquin Valley taste just like pure sunshine. They let their sun-dried figs fully ripen on the tree. Then they harvest them when they're at their peak flavor and sweetness. And best of all, Valley Fig Growers is a grower-owned fig cooperative. So that means when you buy their brands, Orchard Choice and Sunmade California Dry Figs, you're directly supporting the farmers who grow them. So you can snack on figs with easy conscience. Learn more and get some dry fig recipe inspirations at valleyfig.com. I love figs. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El. It's Auntie Jessie here. I finally made it from Brooklyn to the vineyard. And now that we're breathing the same air, I wanted to drop in the walk-in. Got some stuff for you. And wanted to let you know some things about what's up with me right now. Today, Dr. Jessica B. Harris is stepping into the walk-in with me. There is no greater expert on the food of the African diaspora than Dr. Jessica B. Harris. She is the food historian of the culture. Dr. Harris has written 12 critically acclaimed cookbooks and spent nearly five decades as a journalist and educator. She's received every major honor for her work, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from Southern Foodways Alliance. In other words, she's a big deal. Her work has had an enormous impact on me. Her book, Sky Juice and Flying Fish, is still one of my all-time favorites. And today, I get to step into the walk-in with Dr. Harris to get real about how lonely the path to greatness can be. Hello, Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Thank you for coming into the walk-in with me. Hey, Elle. I hope it's cool in this walk-in. Ooh, it is humid over here in New England, so it'll be cool. It will definitely be cool. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here to talk to me. I don't know how much you know about the physical layouts of restaurant kitchens. I'm pretty sure you do. So I'm going to assume that you already know what a walk-in is. Oh, no, I know what a walk-in is. (laughs) Yeah, I know what what a walk-in is, girl. And you know it's for food, but it's also for a moment, right? It's Having for a, a moment. moment. It's for a whole lot of stuff. I'm old enough to remember when the mantra was, stay out of the walk-in, girl. <laughs> the mantra is kind of still stay out of the walk-in. With the exception of this walk-in, everybody should yeah, come this is it. this is a cool walk-in. Yes. This is a good walk-in. Well, that was my formal introduction to the world, so they know who you are. But I know you as Auntie Jessie from Brooklyn where we met, where I lived, uh, what feels like many moons ago, which was really not that long ago. But that's where we met. And I'd love to tell people my favorite post-Brooklyn story, because when I met you, 
maybe a year before moving, the next time we saw each other, I was actually getting ready to leave Brooklyn to come to America's Test Kitchen. And you invited me to your home, which we'll talk about more in detail a little bit later. But it was just a really beautiful moment. It was something that I needed. I was getting ready to take this full leap into something I had never done before. And all the things that you said to me really not only prepared me mentally and emotionally, but also professionally. And not to mention the gorgeous purple crystal goblets you gave me that I still only entertain a date with when I have one. (laughs) The whole experience carried me a long way. And so I'm really excited to have you here and we can really talk again in that very intimate way. It's been a lot going on in the world. COVID has happened. Oh, Lord. We're in the middle of a... a social justice, racial justice movement right now. Amen and hallelujah. Finally, right? So there's a lot to cover today. FIFO, first in, first out. Our first segment of the walk-in is called FIFO, right? First in, first out. So all I want you to do is tell me a little bit about who you are and then tell me what you might be working on presently. So this is FIFO, 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 FUM. Okay, well, I'm Dr. Jessica Harris, Jessica B. Harris, because there's another Jessica Harris in food, so I use my B, not like they couldn't tell us apart, but just so they can (laughs) definitely tell us apart. I am, by avocation, a food historian, which means I study history through the spyglass of food. That's me paraphrasing Zora Neale Hurston. I look at history through food and food through history in another kind of way. My specialty within that is the food of the African diaspora. So it's the food of the African continent itself and then where that food went through the scattering of Africans through the various slave trades, through migrations, through all sorts of things. So it's called Fool's Rush In. I bit off a whole lot before I had any idea what I was <laughs> biting off, but I'm, I'm trying to chew a little of it. So I've done a variety of cookbooks on a variety of topics ranging from the food of Africa itself to the food of the Caribbean, the food of Brazil, a whole kind of gumbo, if you will. It was called Beyond Gumbo and it traced a culinary continuum in what I called the Creole world, what I was, you know, messing with the world. It was all about fusion food, fusion food, fusion food from the Pacific Rim. And I said, no, we got to talk about the Atlantic Rim. That's right. Because we are a nation, I hope we're still a nation, that grew out of (laughs) the Atlantic Rim, not the Pacific Rim. And so when you look at that rim, what are the connectors? What are some of the things that go together? So that's, I've done 12 books in a variety of things on that topic. About three years ago, I wrote a memoir called My Soul Looks Back that Mm -hmm. talks about me when I was younger than you are now. And I was looking at, well, I was fortunate enough to have had an extraordinary experience. The gentleman that I was going out with at that point in time was best friends with James Baldwin. Mm. So I got to hang out with James Baldwin and Maya Angelou and I met Nina Simone. Mm. And I did one of the very, very early interviews of Toni Morrison because I was an editor at Essence. 
I got to sit down with all of the ladies in the cast of For Colored Girls when it was something that was transforming what we thought about in terms of theater. So that's all in that book that's called My Soul Looks Back. Why did you choose to write a memoir when you did? The memoir was very much influenced by the death of Maya Angelou. Mm, That's very interesting. Because I knew Maya, Dr. Angelou, as she was known to the world, but I knew her long enough so that I was allowed to call her Maya, Mm -hmm. which as much as anything spoke to the length of time that we had known each other. I knew her for more than 40 years. Okay. And her death, and I talk about it in the memoir a little bit, sort of gave me a wall slide, threw me down the rabbit hole. We had had an interesting friendship. We weren't, you know, best buds. Right. By any stretch of the imagination, but we had something that was growing respect. And there was just something about that. I was asked by someone at the Times who knew I knew her Mm -hmm. if I'd ever cooked with her. And I said yes and asked me to write about the cooking with her. And then following that, you know, in conversation with my editor, she sort of said, you know, I think that this may be the basis for your next book. What's that about? And then, of course, I met Maya as I met Jimmy, as I met Nina Simone, as I met a variety of folks, was all part of the story of Sam. And Mm -hmm. My Soul Looks Back is really the story of Sam Hmm. more than it is. I mean, it's my memoir, but it's the story of Sam. And what I realized as I wrote it, interestingly enough and peculiarly enough, is it was something I needed to get out. Mm -hmm. It was something that had been in strange ways weighing on me in ways that I wasn't even intellectually conscious of. Until you started writing it? Until it was out. Wow. And then it was like, oh. Mm. oh, that was in there all this time and it it just needed to be out. Mm. So there is an element of that too. Sometimes it's just you write because just, you, don't, you don't even know necessarily that you've got to get it out, but it needs to be out. And then <laughs> in the middle of this pandemic, I have a new book that just came out. That's about my postcard collection. I know, Elle, that you like stuff. I do. I do. You've been to my house, so you know I like stuff. Yes. And so some of the stuff that I like are postcards. And so I have collected antiquarian postcards for about 40 or more years. Wow. And so the book that just came out, which is called Vintage Postcards from the African World, colon, in the dignity of their work and the joy of their play is all postcards from from the African diaspora mm-hmm. of Africans, African people in diaspora, the ancestors, with food from the agricultural to the vending to the service. And then there's a couple of postcards of just ceremonies and parties. There are about 150, I think maybe 175 postcards in the book. That so is that amazing. just came out. I love postcards. I don't know if you know that. I have a friend in Harlem who 
uh, uh, she's an artist, a poet, Latasha Dix. She sends me postcards from everywhere she travels in the world. Oh, lovely. And even just in Harlem, like she she just sent me one the other day. And I, I, it's such a joy to receive postcards. When my grandmother traveled when I was very young, she would always send postcards and she would always come back with that T-shirt that says, my grandmother went to Tahiti and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> so you got a collection of lousy T-shirts. Lousy huh? T-shirts and postcards. Yes, absolutely. That sounds amazing. And I would love to talk about that more. But I want to know a little bit more about your childhood in Queens. When I first moved to New York, I lived in Queens. I was only there for my first six months. And it was very different. When I got to Brooklyn, it was very much like a whole... It was a culture shock. It's very different. It looks different. Very different. Most people drive there, front lawns, backyards, a lot of grass and trees. It was just very different. But tell me more than just physical difference. What was it like growing up in Queens, especially since you spent so many years in Brooklyn? Well, I mean, I am I'm a child of aspirational parents. Let's put it that way. My folks were, I guess nowadays people would say old school, but they were the people who believed that you had to be better. Mm -hmm. If you were better, you might have access to, you know, you had to be twice as good to get half as much. Right. Not necessarily a good way to come up or not necessarily a good paradigm for raising anybody and certainly not about equality. But that was what it was. You got to be twice as good to get half as much. And so they raised me to be twice as good. They actually met in Brooklyn. Oh. My parents met in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was the thing there. My father, he went to high school in Brooklyn. My father went to Erasmus. Okay. But he came from Tennessee, from outside of Nashville. Mm-hmm. And part of the Great Migration. My mother was a northerner. My mother okay. was born in Elizabeth, but grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey. But they were part of that. There was a very vibrant, I guess it was the 30s and 40s, a very vibrant cultural life in Brooklyn. There were jazz clubs. There were all kinds of things that people don't really think about nowadays in terms of Brooklyn. But it was very much an aspirational place. Mm -hmm. They met at some kind of little theater club. And, you know, had at homes and, you know, tea parties and this, that and the other. And then here's comes the big laugh. They moved into the South Jamaica projects because it was, you know, the George Jefferson moving on up. Yes. It was out of Brooklyn into Queens. Queens representing, mm -hmm. I guess, what you said, a private house, a backyard, a different thing. Sure. And, of course, you know, with the... um <laughs> the irony that the world is certainly showing us in spades nowadays. What does their daughter do except move right back to Brooklyn, pretty much where they had started out? Right. So, you know, it was, I had a little swing through Greenwich Village, but I've been in Brooklyn for now about more than 30 years. Yeah. Brooklyn is a pretty magical place. I've never heard anyone really describe it the way you just did, the way your parents experienced it. That sounds like the stories I hear about Harlem all the time. You know, well, the jazz clubs, the house parties, you don't hear anyone really share that type of story or memory about Brooklyn. It's totally believable because I was in Brooklyn for nine years and I'm like, this is a vibe. Yeah. If you go into maybe even some of those old clubs like on Fulton, Frank's, mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of one of the last men standing. Yeah. Of that point in time and not even that point in time. I have a cousin 
who stayed in Brooklyn. Her folks stayed in Brooklyn, didn't move out of Brooklyn, and she always likes to rear up on her hind leg. She's my younger cousin, so <laughs> this is something that gives her something on me. But she always likes to remind me, Jessica, I'm old Brooklyn. You're new Brooklyn. And so even with uh, 30 years of Brooklyn, I'm new Brooklyn to her because she's seen Brooklyn in its other ways. But Brooklyn is fascinating. And I don't know that it has, certainly in in terms of the African Atlantic world and in terms of the Black American world, Mm -hmm. Brooklyn is a spot that, you know, may not have all of the cachet of Harlem but certainly parallels it and holds its own. Absolutely. As most Def says, it's called Planet Brooklyn. There you go. Yeah. You know, something you said really struck me when you said that your parents were raising you to like be better, do better, and raising you under the premise of like working twice as hard. There's obviously an age gap between us. Yes, I'm probably twice yours then, yeah. <laughs> However, I was raised the same way. And it's just very interesting that that mentality or mindset or concept is still very alive and well. You know, like you have to work harder than everyone else. You have to do better. You can't afford to make the same mistakes that your white peers will make or, you know, all the things. And it's like that has never, I don't know that that will ever escape us as a people. What do you think? I don't know that it will. I think that there were a variety of changes and some of them happened With the end of segregation, when people sort of said, okay, we can relax a little now. Mm -hmm. We've attained that, but certainly time has proven that relaxing wasn't what we could do. Right. But I think that that is just the way of certainly the African-American world. And to, I mean, with the extent of what that African-American world has become. So now, aside from being up from the South African-American, it is... Afro-Latinx, it is Afro-Caribbean, it is Mm Afro-Brazilian, it is Afro-African and the whole thing. So, I mean, I think that that is just something that has been a, a truism around the world. But I think the fact that it is a truism is equally something that is driving the current movements in terms of how international they are. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's very true. Well, we have something else in common. I don't know that you know this, but I am also an only child. Oh, okay. I I think that's how I became Auntie Jessie. That is our shared thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting experience as I'm getting older. Like, I think as a kid, I I didn't mind it so much because it was just me. You know, like I never had to really share a thing, although I do have like 15 first cousins. We're all very close, but... I never had to share my parents' attention, really, and I enjoyed it. But as I'm getting older, I think I might be starting to have some different feelings about it. How did you feel about it growing up, and like, how do you feel now? I don't know that I ever really thought about it one way or the other growing mm-hmm. up. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I know that even now, I'm always startled when people say they have siblings. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. People do, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yes. I like you, have a multitude of first cousins. Mm -hmm. My mother was one of 10. Yeah. You know, my father was one of five. But unlike you, we are not really, really close. 
I've got maybe three cousins with whom I speak and I, and that's, it's become with the pandemic and everything a bit more frequently among other reasons, because I'm the eldest of the three, but no, we, I don't feel that. And honestly, at this point in time, I would like to have more family. I am, I can't say suffering from lack of family, but uh, every time we get a holiday, it's like, ooh, there could be a bowl. No, maybe not a barbecue. I have, you know, a multitude of friends, but there is something about the African-American family dynamic that I don't have. Yeah. I feel the same, like, as I'm, you know, getting older, you know, I'm dealing with the things that come with getting older, physical things. I'm always thinking about you know, who will I enlist or who will volunteer to care for me? And, you know, oh, don't go there because you'll get tears. Don't I, I do. I do. I get tears and I think about it. But I'm talking about me. I'm not talking oh. about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, you know, the thing is, is that the reality of that and sometimes I have to swirl myself back around to the reality is that. As much as I think of those things, I also do really enjoy the time that I have to myself. But I I know that whenever I invite or open the door to invite folks in, they come and they will keep coming, you know, like that. It doesn't stop. Like, I do know that you're loved and revered. I can think of three people off the top of my head who would drop everything on a dime to be wherever you are, whenever you need them there, including myself. That's the other thing is I'm so used at this point, you know, I had an early quarantine birthday and turned, God help me, you know, my, I had a great aunt Ethel who said, you know, if a lady will tell you her age, she'll tell you anything. anything? <laughs> so okay. I will tell you my age, which means I will tell you anything. I just turned 72 mm. and that's like, Ooh, that's a number that gives me pause a bit. And equally, in the course of this pandemic, because of the way it rolled out in terms of various vulnerabilities and what they were saying about people and so on and so forth, I think I'm feeling older coming out of it, I hope, trust, pray, than I did going into it. And I ain't happy about that, but I'm getting ready to get some good music and my boogie shoes and figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we have to do at this point. Like, I don't see a huge enough shift in the pandemic for us to feel like anything will go back to how it was. I think we're just figuring it out. I was just all set and ready to be at the beach. I'm like, if I can't find any other type of normalcy or new normalcy, at the very least, the ocean never changes. And I can go and get that. I go, yeah, my, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, let's move a little further back into the past because sometimes thinking of the good old days are the good days, right? They are for me. Well, anyway. no, no, the good days are tomorrow. Oh, if we get it. No, no, no. The fact that we will probably most likely have it is what you got to do because that's what's got to keep you going. That's what's got to impel and propel and compel you to move forward. Mm, that's because a word. Because if we, yeah, well, you know, if we stick in the past, we can get stuck. Yeah. And we can continue to look backwards. Looking backwards so you can see where you're going 
is good thing. That's the Sankofa thing. Right. Go back and snatch it. Go back and get what you're going to move forward with. But to think that the best is behind you, I'm a whole lot older than you, girl, and I'm still thinking the best is in front of me. Okay, so, well, that's something yeah. I can I can pick that up. I can definitely pick that up. Pick that up and run with it. I the will. The best is in front of you. <laughs> I definitely will. You're right. You're absolutely right. Nuku makes high-quality cookware and bakeware for home chefs. And the products are so good, even their own employees can't get enough. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products, raving about her four-quart stockpot. The one piece that I really love is our four-quart stockpot. It's perfect for so many things, soups, pastas, sauces, and it's not too big and it's not too small. When I make my holiday cream pies, this gives me perfect results every single time. For perfect cream pies and more, grab your own Nuku. Nuku cookware and bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit Nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for a 35% savings off their stockpots. That's N-U-C-U.com, promo code KITCHEN. I started out as a social worker. And like so many other people in this industry, I decided later in life that I wanted to pursue my culinary dreams. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is made for people like us. Their programs are flexible enough for all kinds of students. From the career changer, like me, to the experienced industry professional looking to add new skills. With their curriculum, you get it all. The classic culinary training, plus the business foundation to take you to the next level. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. I went to Eastern Michigan University, which was a very valuable experience. I loved it. But I always wanted to go to an HBCU. Tell me about Bryn Mawr, Mm -hmm. your experience there and did you ever desire to go to any other school than the one you went to or have any other experience than what you had? Well, there, I've had several experiences because I went to Bryn Mawr, mm-hmm. which was, of course, when I went there, it, it was still an all-women's college. Yes. It's one of the seven sisters. There were actually a grand total of six Black women in my class of 200. So wow. there wasn't a whole lot of us. Yes. And we were the largest class that they'd had. So I think there were probably, if you count the three classes that would have been ahead of me, maybe two in each of those classes. So at the most, there were fewer than 20 Black women on the entire campus. Wow. So that was in and of itself something that was of the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that was about time and place. And when you know better, you do better. I can't say any more than that. I didn't not enjoy my experience. My experience was pretty good. I made a lot of friends. Some of them I am still in touch with. Just got a call from a college friend today. Mm. 
you know, so yeah. I'm actually still talking to folks from college. I'm still talking to folks from grade school. And that was even another kind of thing. Yeah. But that being said, fast forward. Well, stick a pin in that. Let me just make one more parentheses because I seem to be professorial enough to talk in parentheses. <laughs> but I did a junior year in France with Sarah Lawrence. Yes, I was just going to ask Sarah that. Lawrence mm-hmm. was actually, you know, one of my first choice schools, my first choice school because I wanted to be an actress. Right. And Bryn Mawr didn't have a theater department, which was part of my parents' master plan. And I'm like, so I did get to go to Paris with Sarah Lawrence, and I lived with a family, and that family has just been extraordinary. Twenty years after I left them and France and everything else, I went back, mm. and we reconnected. I found them. We reconnected. I have become increasingly friendlier and friendlier with them. And during this pandemic, I got to say, they have held me up big time. That's great. Between the so-called large quotation marks brothers and sisters who have called me, I would get a call from at least one member of the family once a week during this whole thing. Mm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes two members of the family. And, you know, just talk and say what's what, because they were confined in Paris and I was, you know, stuck in Brooklyn. And that was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, all of those experiences are one thing. Fast forward about maybe, I don't know, 40 years after that. And I was the inaugural scholar in residence in the Ray Charles chair at Dillard University. Dillard is an HBCU in New Orleans. And there was something just so extraordinary and magical and empowering about that. Yes. Now the question is, would it have been as magical and empowering for me when I went to college at 16 and wasn't necessarily ready or able to handle a lot of the social, a lot of the other stuff that comes with HBCUs, I have no idea. Right. That's but fair. I know that, you know, listening, just being in an auditorium and listening to them sing, lift every voice and sing, you know, I got goosebumps every time. Every time. Well, I taught at Queens College in New York City for 55 years. I retired two years ago. I went to an occasional commencement. Mm-hmm. The last commencement I went to, probably the one I remember most, was last year's commencement, 2019, because the then president of the college made me the marshal at commencement. And that was a very moving commencement. It was incredible, you know, particularly because I got to say, you know, the commencement, the services are now open. Yes. And you, you know, bang the mace and do all kinds of cool stuff. But there was something about the community. There is something magical that happens when like-minded Black people get together. Yes, indeed. You know, there is a magic that is created that is that is palpable, mm-hmm. that really creates an atmosphere that 
I think is part of what has sustained us and kept us moving. You know, it's what happens in church. It's what happens in some HBCUs. For some people, not everybody, because some people go and have a not-so-good time. But if you get it and it gets you, ain't nothing like it. That's very true. We had a very similar experience out in uh, Austin, Texas at Soul Summit. The energy that was created at Soul Summit was transformative for me. It was the event that tied us. We met and spent time after that. I definitely formed some of my stronger camaraderies in the industry. Uh, and also, it I left feeling very, um, not just inspired, but I felt brave and secure. You know, it let me know, like, I have a a lot of people behind me, you know, and I have a lot of shoulders to stand on. And it was, I mean, to this day, anyone asks, it's like, that was one of the most magical experiences. All right, tell me about, I have never been to Paris. Paris is my one dream place to go. I was actually literally booked and ready to go for this summer and COVID, of course. Tell me about Paris. I know it's a place that you go, you love, and you obviously have a deeper connection with the family that was connected to your initial visit. Tell me about Paris. It's such a special heart place to me. I actually, this is something that I have said to no one and I'm still working through, so don't hold me to it. Okay. But with this pandemic, I may be trying to figure out ways to put some of me there Mm -hmm. because I think one of the things that I'm realizing about myself is my thought process is a lot more European in many ways than it is American. Mm -hmm. I equally think my lifestyle, you know, I'm happy going to the market and going to three different stores because I'm going to get my cheese here, my bread here, my something else somewhere else. Yes. I can do that. I love France's love of intellectuals, Mm -hmm. which is so diametrically opposed to America's anti-intellectualism. Yes. Especially now. You know. Yes. Yeah. Well, mm, we're not even talking about now. I'm not allowed (laughs) to talk about now. But I think some of those things are very much what I love about France. Mm -hmm. I have a favorite cafe, but I tend to scurry in and scurry out. I want to just simply be in France. I go to a hotel. I can spend the entire day in a hotel room. Mm -hmm. But it's a French hotel room. I know the people downstairs. So the hotel room is almost like home. Yes. And the people in the hotel have become like family. So it's like me being at home with family. I don't feel necessarily the need to be out and run the street. Sure. I have dinner with my friends. I have dinner with my family, but I'm thinking, and I've never lived in France. And anybody who knows me always has said, well, why not? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised, yeah. I know. I think some of it is that um, I haven't been terribly adventurous in my life. I've been very adventurous. I I saw your head spin around. (laughs) I've been very adventurous in a lot of ways. But I've also been very conservative. Mm-hmm. I was raised, I mean, the apocryphal Jessica story as a young child was, be careful 
be careful. Mm. Apparently, my parents used to always say that to me, and I literally would go up to people, you know, in my mother's arms and reach out to people, go, be careful, lady, be careful. Mm. So I've been careful. Yeah. I have a friend in New Orleans who gave me a new mantra that I think I'm going to, I'm going to try to do some living on and, you know, what time remains and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that idea is, if not now, when? Yes. Yes. You know, if not now, when? So I'm living that full truth right now. If not now, when? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to stop being quite so careful. I think I'm going to stop trying quite as much being safe. And maybe, maybe, just maybe try to be a little bit different, a little bit looser. I mean, who knows? You know, at this point in time, some things may just be such an integral part of who I am. I can't change them, but we'll see. Hmm. That's an interesting statement to say. I don't, I, th I think a lot of people equate age with the lack of ability slash desire to change. I don't know if I have enough years under my belt to really give an educated response to that or like an experiential response to it. But I think, I don't know. I'm also kind of learning a different lesson about life and living. And I'm feeling like as long as I have a tomorrow, I can do it, you know? Like you, I am not as brave as I think people perceive me to be. Mm -hmm. This is, might be the first time I've ever openly admitted that. I appear very adventurous. And in some areas of my life, I am. Like, I would live anywhere, right? I can live anywhere. If someone said pack up and move to Barbados, I would do it in a heartbeat. But... I have always been, in my heart of hearts, a writer. I'm actually a very good writer, but I've never been brave enough to pursue it as a career. I compare my writing to others. Although I do consider myself a very intellectual person, I have a very simplistic vocabulary. Like, I have no desire to deep dive into long, big words. Like, I have my own form of communication and getting my words out, my thoughts out. Yet and still, when it comes to something as simple as writing a book, and I know it's not simple as me being sarcastic, but, you know, the process would be easy because I work for a company that publishes books all the time. But yet and still, even without the barriers that my peers would experience, I still don't feel brave enough to really do it. I just wrote my first published piece of work for Culture Cheese magazine. And this is, I mean, for public consumption, I wrote it, the recipes, the words, the thoughts, all of it. And I haven't even read it yet. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing is, we all have different comfort zones and comfort levels. Step out. I mean, write it for you. Yeah. Don't write it thinking about who's going to read it and what they're going to say and how they're going to deal with it and all the rest of it. Write it because you have to. Mm. Write it because you got to get it off of you. Yeah. And there are multiple different kinds of writing. There is something very, very, what can I say? Something that enables you to be self-effacing mm -hmm. in much culinary writing because then you're talking about something else. You know, you said you wrote an article for cultured cheese. So you're talking about cultured cheese. So you're not necessarily talking about yourself. Right. Not at all. So that allows, <laughs> that'll, there you go. So that allows you to hide. Mm-hmm. 
that allows you to string words together. That allows you to, you know, put things on a page. But do that dive because you've got stories to tell. Mm. And African-Americans in general, we are storytellers. We are people of the word. Yeah. You know, if the Jewish people say that they are people of the book, mm-hmm. honey, we are people mm-hmm. of the word. We yeah. love words. That's why we came up with rap. That's you right. Know, that's <laughs> why we love to play with words. We love double meanings and we love words in whatever languages have been imposed on us. Mm-hmm. We take those languages and make them our own in another kind of way. And there is no need for polysyllabic vocabulary. Right. <laughs> I mean, I prided myself many times on writing something that my grandmother could read and understand, and she was not a schooled person. The Wall Slide. So one of the segments of the podcast is called The Wall Slide, and I'm sure you've had many moments where you probably had to slide down a wall and just give it a good cry, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. Those moments in life that just really kind of broke us down. And I was deep diving into your memoir and just in your life, as much of it as you shared with us in that book. And, you know, you lost two very important men in your life. You lost your father and you lost Sam. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that affected whatever was going on in your life at that time. Were you writing a book at that time? I don't think so. I know that... My dad never saw, actually never consciously saw any of my books. Mm-hmm. He was ill on hospice care. And I remember when the book came out, he was unconscious. And I just remember taking his hand and putting it on top of the book and saying, Dad, I've, I've done a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done a book. Which means he may, may have been conscious for the galleys, but he hadn't seen the book. So that. That was certainly, I mean, you know, my parents are the, I guess, the consummate wall slide because my mother was simultaneously my my mother, of course, but also my interlocutor. She was the one with whom I would always have the back and forth conversations. I realized that I am someone who needs to bounce things off of people. Mm-hmm before I make a step. Yes. And the problem becomes when the person that you trusted to bounce those things off of isn't there. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that happened when my mother died, and both my parents died in the month of May. So the month of May, I'm a wreck. Yeah. You know, my father died on the 7th. My mother died on the 20th. It was 15 years apart. My mother's been gone for 20 years this year. My father's been gone for 35, God help us, this Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it still takes my breath away. I can imagine. So that's the big wall slide. I can, you know, I can get all weepy and, you know, crazy and very, you know, reddened nose and snot dripping and all kinds of ugly stuff about a lot of things. I mean, a lot of people think that I am financially way more secure than I think I am. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that's something that makes me anxious. Yes. I don't like being anxious about money. 
Right. I get anxious about not having a partner. Mm-hmm. That makes me anxious. I get anxious about whew, dying alone makes me anxious. And Lord knows those 95 days, 94 days that I spent solo in Brooklyn were way too much time to be worried about that. Yes. I mean, I think that this current pandemic and the fact that I have literally spent those 95 days in my house by myself with two cats, as I used to jokingly said, learning to speak fluent cat, (laughs) you know. Yes. That was, as my grandmother would have said, that was a blister. That was a blister and a half. And, And I really... I am thrilled to be on Martha's Vineyard where I have a porch I can look out of and see people. I can do a little social distancing. But because of the solitude that in many ways I have crafted, but not necessarily knowingly. Yeah. You know, it was hard. It was really, really hard. COVID is the ultimate wall slide. It's the ultimate wall slide. And what it does and i'm sure it has done it for you but what it has done for me it has given me too much time in my own head mm-hmm. and while it is a fascinating playground and i'm happy to get up <laughs> in there sometimes i don't need quite this much time in there because uh, no, you know, that's right you start thinking about well i could have done and i should have and ooh, if yeah. i hadn't been so picky about that and if i had <laughs> saved that money and if i hadn't bought this and if i didn't buy that and Oh, Lord, if I could sell this and what, it's just like, mm, no, yeah, too much, too much, too much. Well, one thing I've always wanted to ask you, and I'm glad we're talking about what you mentioned, Martha's Vineyard and Brooklyn, of all the places you call home, which is your favorite? <laughs> That's sort of like asking somebody who her favorite child is. I think some of that is in flux mm-hmm. right now because of the pandemic. Sure. I love my house in Brooklyn. I deeply, deeply, deeply love my house in Brooklyn. It has been a sanctuary. It has been a refuge. It has been, you know, the party palace. It has been a lot of things. I love my place in New Orleans. It too has been a refuge. It in some ways was the house in France that I wasn't courageous enough to buy in France. Mm-hmm. Or the house in the Caribbean that I wasn't courageous enough to buy in the Caribbean because it combines both of those aspects of my life. Very much so. And it has that vibe. Mm-hmm. It definitely has that vibe oh, absolutely. to it. I love it. Absolutely. The vineyard is the inviolable one. I remember my father here. He didn't know the place in Brooklyn or New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I remember my mother here. I remember my grandmother here. This is the family house. And as I'm thinking about downsizing or resizing or reconfiguring, I suspect that the vineyard is the inviolable one. Mm -hmm. All of the others may or may not come into play. And of course, I keep hoping that somebody will figure out I'm absolutely brilliant. Give me a MacArthur and then I'll be able to keep them all. (laughs) 
I'm hoping for the latter as well. Well, you mean and are worth the world to me, Auntie Jessie. I'm so glad to have some time with you. I will be seeing you at the Vineyard very soon. Okay, well, that's lovely. I look forward to air hugs. Air hugs, yep. I'm sending one right now. And back at you, back at you. And thank you so much for coming into the walk-in with me. We always appreciate the gift you give to the world in terms of words and um, just your life. And I'm wishing it to you in full abundance. Enjoy the summer at the Vineyard. It's made for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to sharing some of it with you. If you want to learn more about Dr. Harris's work, follow her on Instagram. Her handle is at Dr. Jessica B. Harris. That's DR for doctor. You can also sign up for the new newsletter she'll be starting this fall at her website, africooks.com. Her latest book, Vintage Postcards from the African World, is available from your favorite independent bookseller or from the University Press of Mississippi's website. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caroline Rickard. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Hen Margolis, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Ivana Strawin is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Blue Shield California, New Coop, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.